Welcome to this week's Two Men in the Middle. This is where two men in the middle of the country get together and talk about politics, current events, and other fun stuff. I'm Craig Huey. I'm Brandon Kinnig. So, Brandon, it looked like the the Democrats got off the the mat here this week and picked up the the bones, at least, of the Build Back Better agenda and happened to get something passed. There seems to be some sort of movement uh, with Senator Manchin out of West Virginia that's going to provide some sort of legislative package that's going to move forward. Extremely significant. Everybody thought that Build Back Better was dead. They were trying to salvage pieces of that, particularly on the prescription drug benefit, some tax credits, uh, and they uh, and that even looked impossible. And then now we have this framework of this new legislation, which would be super far-reaching, the most impactful climate change legislation ever. Um, it also includes the ability of, for the government um, to negotiate drug prices for Medicare, which has been talked about for over 20 years and has never happened. So this this is huge. It's a seven hundred billion dollar bill. Mm-hmm. Um, it also includes new tax credits for solar, wind, hydrogen power. And the difference here is there's existing tax credits under the law that are specific only to solar. And the problem is those tax credits uh, cannot be used for other emerging. Uh, clean technologies. They can only be used for solar. And the new tax credit system is, uh, I would say, technology agnostic, It, uh, which means that it will also apply if there's other technologies that come down the road, which is very significant. The estimate so far is that uh, by the end of the decade, um, it will have us at 40% below 2005 emissions levels, mm-hmm. um, which is extremely significant. And uh, it also includes uh, tax credits for users that buy electric vehicles. I don't think the exact amount has been specified like $7, yet. Seventy five hundred dollars. Seventy five hundred is what I've as heard a, as from a family under three hundred thousand. Right, and I think there's a forty five hundred one on a used vehicle now. Correct. Which yeah. That's new. Okay, so that's where I was confused because I saw the forty five hundred number after I saw the seventy five hundred. But yeah, yeah forty five hundred for used, seventy five hundred for new. Yeah, and there is income. Um, thresholds there and uh, restrictions. But but yeah, I, so there's a lot in there. Um, and again, so Democrats will be able to run on that, again, assuming this gets passed. That and I think the, the Medicare prescription drug issue can't be overstated because, I, I mean, I remember as a kid that being talked about. I mean, that's yeah. been talked about for decades, so I think what that, that loophole. Is by, in 2026, they can negotiate the price on 10 drugs, on like 20, 30, it goes up to 10 more. Yeah, it's a stair-step approach. And I think for certain seniors, there's a max now that you can pay out of pocket of $2,000 right. for, for drugs. I don't know which senior population that hits, but it, it, it certainly, for the first time, there's a cap on what you can spend on, on prescription drugs, which and it's, is good. Right, and it's similar to how any large organization, healthcare organization, association, how they uh, represent their members, you know, in mass uh, to be able to negotiate prescription drug prices. It's a way that most other uh, Western nations mm. on a government level negotiates drug prices. So it does bring us up to par with yeah. how it's being done elsewhere. So Brandon, this was one bill, and this bill is going to be passed through reconciliation, if I understand correctly. Correct, yeah. So this is the, this is the under reconciliation, you can pass things with a 50, a simple majority, if they only impact budgetary items, I believe, is, is how reconciliation works, or something, something like that. You can't make new, but you can adjust the budget under the, this reconciliation project. Right. So 
Let's talk a little bit about the timeline of the Build Back Better bill. And is this the is this what was left over of that three trillion dollar bill? That is this what could pass out of the initial Build Back Better bill? Because Build Back Better came back sometime about a about a yearish ago mm-hmm. is when that first hit, and I believe the first kind of estimated cost for that was somewhere north of three trillion dollars. And it was generally seen as a grab bag of absolutely everything coming out of the the pandemic. One way to look at this, was this just a really sloppy legislative process working out between the the, the Senate Democrats and, and Manchin that finally came to fruition? Is that one way to look at this? Or I guess as a Democrat, I, I thought this was dead in the water two weeks ago when Manchin well, came out and said, I'm, I'm done. Well, and again, this isn't everything that was in Build Back Better. No, so, but is this what could actually pass? Yes. Is what it sounds like. Well, and I think, and what I don't understand is, I do think it was a sloppy process, and we finally got to here. But there were some compromises done according to this proposal, which I don't understand why those could have happened before. Sure. So, for example, you know there are incentives for development of uh, clean technologies, energy technologies, um, as well as being able to provide, um, you know, for those that uh, on the land side. But there's also, um, you know, a give and take because uh, Manchin was able to secure, uh, I I forget, I'm getting this partially wrong, but for every carve out for um, land area for development of uh, green technology of some kind, um, the federal government will also um, establish new leasing for offshore drilling, for example. And also leasing for pipelines, too. For pipelines, too. Which directly impacts West Virginia. Right. And I know that's something environmentalists are not crazy no. about. But again, that was the compromise to get Manchin to support this. So, I mean, but take, I don't understand. You, you, mean, you mean we're taking the approach with Manchin? <laughs> we'll take what we we can get because right. it's better than what we have. What I don't understand that they not like offer to do that in the beginning. Was that not on the table? Was it just all or nothing? Cause again, that's something that should have been discussed back in the beginning of the process. So maybe what we're, maybe what we're learning here is that when you come out with a $3 trillion plus dollar package of legislation, what makes it actually to law or has a chance to make it to be voted on to make it to law is about $700 billion of that. Right. So about $2.3 trillion of this, this wish list got lost along the way. Well, it was is over- that what took a year is just trimming <laughs> out that $2.3 trillion? Uh, Supposedly. I, I don't know. I guess it's confusing to me because uh, apparently there's this been this back and forth. Manchin was in, he was out. And so we don't know the nuances of what type of negotiation was occurring and, and how that was taking place. And, and so I wonder, was there just this, uh, reluctance to negotiate on some of the key aspects? Was it kind of digging the hills in the sand and we want as much as possible and we're not going to give up or we're not going to do anything that would also, uh, you know, result in additional, um, you know, pipeline development and leasing of for drilling. I, I so I, I don't know. I struggle to kind of figure out why now and why this couldn't have happened many months ago. So two weeks ago, Manchin says, I won't sign the climate change stuff. It's too much money. And I need to wait for the July inflation numbers to come out before I feel comfortable making a move. Pod Save America is reporting basically that Larry Summers called Manchin and explained to him that the the, the, the legislation that he was signing, this bill, would not add to inflation. And somehow that made Manchin comfortable enough to sign this. I, I don't think that's true 
at, at all. I, I don't believe Larry Summers made a call to Manchin promising him that inflation was not going to go up because of, of this bill, and that's why he signed it. I don't I, either. I think the key to this lies more in the, the, the energy lease process that you talked about and what that directly means to West Virginia. It gives him a win so he can go back and say, hey, I secured this as the, part of the legislation. The only person who politically wins in this whole thing is Manchin. Because he goes back to West Virginia and says, I held the line for over a year. I whittled this massive spending thing down to $700 billion, which in today's economy and today's legislation bills is, is much more palatable than the things we've been passing up to this point. I got lower drugs included in it, lower drug prices. That includes everybody. And don't forget, West Virginia has a lot of seniors, 100%. high senior population. Capped up, so for some of you, the most you can spend at, at $2,000. And for that, I had to sign off on some climate change. I had to make some kind of, of concession, and this is what it is. Right. I, I think he walks away... Manchin walks away as a political winner because everything he needs to hold that seat and to message back to West Virginia, he got. He sets himself as a man apart. I'm not part of that progressive, whatever the Democrats got going on in the Senate. I proved that by holding out for a year. I got this thing whittled down to its most important parts. And he's going to be able to spin that to a pretty effective message to the folks in in West Virginia. Oh, agreed. And I think partially, too, maybe his... Uh, thought process on this, including uh, included the fact that this could be a legacy item for him as well. Like, I mean, sure. you know, looking at legacy, I mean, you know, he's not super young. He has to start, you know, be thinking about like what he's going to be remembered for. And so, you know, I, I think that there's an aspect of that because in the public statements he's made so far about this, he seems pretty proud of it. Um, I think you, so. You know, he's not downplaying it and he's not saying, uh, you know, he, he seems to be boasting about it. So I, I think, again, there may have been a switch in the thought process there as well um, in terms of getting him on board. And what's really going to be interesting is we're, we're going to see who Kristen Cinema is. She, she's going to have to show us now. Yeah. Because I, it's I, really easy to be 52 voting against. It's really hard to be 51. Yeah. So her I, a lot of pressure is gone. Yeah. She folds like a cheap suit and goes along with the Democratic Party. I can't imagine she would do otherwise no. because, I mean, that would ensure not only a primary opponent but a heavily funded primary Correct. opponent uh, next time around. And Kristen Cinema is there to entertain. The entertainment value is over. Vote with the rest of the party and let's yeah, let's go. Because I did hear. I mean, the one thing that she had, and it's, again, this is a very uh, diving into the weeds of the bill. Um, there is one thing that she has long been opposed to, and it has to do with the count, yeah. counting investor. Um, it, isn't that the carrier tax The loophole? carrier tax yeah. loophole, yeah, which she opposes. So being able to reclassify um, investor gains as income. Uh, but I can't imagine her sinking the entire bill because of no, that. No, I, I can't. If she does, she's out of politics at this point. Yeah. I mean, or especially as, as a Democrat. And then the other one caveat they said is uh, on the House side – for some of the House Democrats from um, some of the higher tax states like New York and California, they wanted a higher, or I'm sorry, a larger tax decrease. Yeah, um, which are not going to get. They mansion pooped on that one, right? But I mean, but again, it's it's about compromise, and that's a great. I mean, th- 
Mm-hmm. This is how you play the political game, folks. Mansion craps all over the salt tax. That is a blue rich state state tax issue. It's yeah. not a red state tax issue. Issue. It's not a West Virginia tax issue. So he craps all. He, he it gets that out of the bill, and now he can leverage that both economically, politically, and culturally back home. Right. He can basically say, "I'm sticking up for what's fair by not letting rich blue state progressives get out of taxes." And why we can't see that and allow Manchin to do things like that is just is mind-boggling. It's going to be real interesting to watch everybody in the media that just absolutely said Manchin was a pox on the party suddenly do a 180 and saying his, his praises. And I think what we're learning is this is what you can get out of a West Virginia Democrat in the Senate. Yeah. This also has a 15% minimum corporate tax rate. It I, does, I, yeah. I'm so, going to have to read more about what that actually is. So does. that was something that Janet Yellen, um, the uh, uh, Treasury Secretary, had been advocating for. And the idea behind that is to make it less appealing for companies to go country shopping yeah. to find um, lower corporate tax rates, which has been uh, a phenomenon in the last several years. And what Yellen would like to do is have this spread all over Asia and Europe, where yeah. everybody's corporate tax rate is the same. It's similar, yeah. So, so right. there's no reason to incorporate in Northern Ireland because of the tax break. Yep. Now, so there's a lot to that bill. Where this gets a little bit more complicated, the political side of it, is how it's tied to this CHIPS bill. The CHIPS bill passed the Senate, I think, earlier this week, and I believe it, it just did. passed the House today. So do you want to walk through what the CHIPS bill is a little bit? Yeah, so the CHIPS bill is this massive influx of funding for the semiconductor industry, uh, and this has a lot of resonance because of our competition with China uh, and China leading in the manufacturing of that. Um, the idea is to be able to have a domestic manufacturing base for that so we're not dependent or beholden on foreign powers, particularly foreign powers that are adversaries. Uh, and one of the components of this is to establish a lot of those manufacturing centers um, in rural America, so places that have seen factories go bust and that are um, hurting and yeah. neglected to be able to revitalize those, um, you know, those towns and those uh, areas. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how they're going to do that, but that's an interesting concept that they want to make some of these technology centers for development and manufacturing located in the Midwest. They talked about Youngstown, Ohio would yeah. be a perfect uh, town to receive one of these kind of things. So something that I've been hearing in the past couple of days as, the, as China's intent to Taiwan becomes more and more, I think, in focus, do you want... Let's take a quick side tangent here. Do you think Pelosi should go to Taiwan? Is oh, it gosh, worth it just a lot to of... shout, I'm an American, I go wherever I want, to just poke the Chinese right in the eye with a stick? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm conflicted on that. I mean, I think that, you know, on some level, like, we shouldn't be intimidated by China to, to not, yeah. you know, make those types of, I mean, we've played this dance for so long when it comes to Taiwan. Uh, but it's been interesting to see it get more and more attention over the last several days. Um, but I mean, I, I tend to, I think I probably fall somewhere on the side that she should still make the trip at this point. I think canceling the public reaction Sends and reception that would send the wrong message. And Taiwan's important in this bill because I think Taiwan, South Korea, and Germany are the three main manufacturers 
uh, sophisticated computer chips. Yes. Yeah, Taiwan especially. It's amazing to me, and I didn't know that until several months ago, that Damn. as tiny of an island nation as they are, they have an outsized role in the manufacturing of those chips. And I believe Taiwan has a has a protocol in place that if China invades, the first thing they do is fry all those chips. Oh, really? The first thing That's they do is they do not want them falling into China's hands. Wow. So we're sitting here with an aggressive adversary threatening threatening one of the top three manufacturers of sophisticated chips in the world. If you're wondering how the chip manufacturing affects American business, General Motors is projecting that this year's revenue will fall by over 40%, with the number one reason being they have over 10,000 incomplete vehicles they're just going to have to scrap. 40%? Because they, because wow. they cannot get the chips to complete them. That's amazing. So think about that. Our biggest car manufacturers' revenue is down forty percent because of the ability to get to get computer chips. So I like this. Um, it's interesting to see a bunch of free market Republicans basically pass a bill that federally subsidizes semiconductor production in the United States. I happen to agree with it. Yeah. But this is an example of the free market is. Until it isn't. And this is an area where if we're not making those chips, this is a, an area of national economic and, and, and military security. I'm okay with the government investing that money to, to help this, this industry. I am too. Like I, and I'm a free market guy, but I think I also recognize the time and place that we find ourselves sure. in and the fact that the geopolitical risk of uh, not having our own manufacturing base when it comes to that necessary component and the outsized impact on our economy. Like, I mean, our economy could tank if we don't do something to, to change those dynamics. Um, Along with the rise of China. I mean, I think it would be different if you go went back like 30 years. Um, but based on where we are now, you know, it's it's a there's national security interests involved. There's economic interest. Yeah, I like, again, how they they, they put rural America revitalization into this at the forefront. of it. Don't yeah. know how much of that's going to happen, but at least it's worth taking a whack at to see if we can. Right, because I mean, we know that rural America is bleeding people, bleeding population, and yeah. you know, and is suffering. And uh, there hasn't been any coherent answer for how you revitalize these small towns throughout the the Midwest yeah. and rural South and Appalachia. And this may be the starting point for that. I heard that the United States, we are the world leader in innovation. China is the world leader in manufacturing. Yeah. We need to marry those two together around the super, con super chip industry and make sure we're, we're making what we need here in, in the United States. Completely. Be, uh, when it comes to that, like self-reliance, that is a, a yeah. need. And I do completely still agree with free market principles as far as free t trade and being able to find expertise and buy from countries who excel at being able to produce particular products and goods and services. Um, but this this is one area in particular where the, the impact is just so enormous. Like it is its own, I, I think, uh, um, it stands alone from other yeah. parts of GDP. I mean, to me, I go back to what Bernie Sanders always said. Hey, guys, we're socialist. We just don't get any of the good parts of it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're free market until we're not free well, market. Well, the United States has never been. a whole been... lot of places that we are not free market. 
Brandon, we still give give the oil and gas industry $16 billion a year to offset the the cost of of R&D. There's a lot of industries that we subsidize. To some of the most profitable companies in the world. It's more accurate to refer to us as a mixed market economy. You know, we have where we're like, you know, some free market, you know, some government um, interventions, so what you would call socialist, but we've never been 100% free market. And there is no system in the world that I know of that's 100% free market. And if China and Germany and South Korea are going, if their governments are going to bankroll and support that industry, if we're going to stay on top of it and not be reliant on them, we're going to, we we're probably to going so to have well. to do the same, the same thing. Right. I would also add to when you were uh, outlining China's uh, core competencies, I would also add copycatting, rel- replicating what others do. Like but, they, but, they seem to do a lot of that as well. But this is, but I think this is my point. We place so much value on innovation. The Chinese don't give two shits. It's, Not at all, yeah. Can you make a million of those in a day? Yeah. Where we stress entrepreneurship and and idealism and that it's your it's your passion and your energy that drives our economy forward, the Chinese take a much more practical approach. We're going to perfect making one million widgets faster than anybody else can make them before but depending at a price nobody can touch. That nobody can beat. But the, the consequence of that, depending on the product, uh, is quality. So they, you know, their goods can suffer in quality. I mean, we saw that during the pandemic. I mean, their COVID vaccines sure. didn't work. Yeah. I mean, they, there was a, and you know, their COVID tests. Well, why did accurate. that not work? Because they had to innovate. That's not what they That's do. That's not what they do. If yeah. we would have sent them the formula, they could have had 8 billion doses made for every human in right. a very short period of time. But that's a good example of, that's just not what they do. Their economy, their culture, their society, it's just not set up to do that. It's not what they value culturally. Exactly. Yeah. And we can't we can't be a dependent partner on that. And I think China doesn't make the same quality of chips that South Korea and Germany makes. I, yeah, I would agree with that as well. Um, the, the 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 fear is that if China took Taiwan, and they could basically force a great part of the world's market back onto their older inferior chips just to get them, and that they would basically corner a portion of the chip market that we would be we would be out of. And we couldn't recover from there. Exactly. Well, it would shrink the entire chip market, I mean, exponentially. And then it would, I mean, remove, you know, a quality component, you know, by not having those Taiwanese chips. And so, yeah, it would have huge ramifications. Brandon, what puzzles me most about all of this is there's a real possibility that Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin outmaneuvered Mitch McConnell. Uh, Once in a lifetime event. I mean, I, Chuck Schumer is not known for his. Unless Mitch McConnell came out and admitted savvy. to it, I will. I will never. I'll have a hard time believing this. But I think what we're getting at is McConnell said, "I will vote for the. I will get the Republicans to vote for Chip because that's a matter of national security. But if you go forward with any of this climate change tax stuff, we're out. We will. Per, we will sink the Chips bill. So." Two weeks ago, Manchin gives his his statement that he is never going to vote for this this reconciliation tax climate bill. The Senate goes ahead and passes the the chips bill with McConnell's approval. Then suddenly, two weeks later, Manchin has a complete reversal on his position, and they sign they they're going to move forward with with the reconciliation bill. 
the 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 tax changes, the the uh, uh, the uh, prescription drugs, and the climate change stuff. Right. Infuriating McConnell to the point that Kevin McCarthy was whipping votes, Republican votes, against the chip bill that passed today, I believe with 14 or 15 Republicans still voting for it because not voting for it is insane. Yeah, I, I didn't hear the – I was curious because I didn't hear what the final vote count was. I saw something on, on Twitter that The Hill put out that – I think it was 14 or 15 actually voted for it. It's just saying, hey, I, I get it that we're kind of pissed that they they linked these two things and they basically got over on us. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to vote for a bill that 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 accomplishes yeah. some things that we desperately I'm actually need surprised right more to vote for it just because yeah. of yeah, I mean, the true. electioneering this fall. So, Brandon, could that have happened? Did did were we all just duped by the long game that Manchin and, and Schumer played? And for all of my side complaining and just calling them morons that they they're the ones playing 4D chess and they they beat McConnell. I, I struggle over that. I don't know because the Democrats have never played the long game and no. I it, it seems no. to me and we never beat McConnell. No, I mean it seems to me to leave a lot to fate to have this just drag out for as long as it has because i think the closer we got to november elections the more it put the democrats in peril so for me it's hard to think that this may have been the long game when they came up so close to the november elections that i mean if anything did it go right and this you know didn't happen before the elections they wouldn't have anything to show or for their candidates to run on so i don't know if it's a long game or if it's just pieces fall into place accidentally I don't know. I just, I, it's difficult to say. It's hard for me to believe that this was the plan. Yeah. Because the Biden administration has been dragged by the national media, by Democrats, progressives. Right. Everybody. Why not have done that earlier to shore up Biden's Correct. approval rating? And why sit there for a year in a negotiation with, with a single senator that it doesn't feel like you're making any ground on? You're diminishing your power within your own party, and it makes you look weak yeah. until magically you get something passed. I mean, Schumer has been criticized over the last year and a half for being very feckless and ineffective, and, and for good reason, because, I mean, he's had nothing to show— uh, really, f- with the uh, Senate Democrats this entire time. I mean, this changes it. But but again, why would you allow yourself to go through all that, have your reputation go through the mud? It doesn't seem like that would be worthwhile if this was all part of a grand plan. So when we hit the midterms, the Democrats with basically the slimmest of all majorities in the Senate and a four-person majority in the House, if I have this correct, would have passed a, a bill over a trillion dollars for a COVID relief bill passed over a trillion dollar infrastructure bill, passed the first major gun reform law in 20-ish plus years. Right. Passed a bill that redid how Medicare negotiates prescription drugs and capped costs for people, which has been talked about for 20 years. Passed the most uh, comprehensive climate legislation that has ever been passed, I believe, by the federal government and took a step for national security and the first step in probably many of fighting back economically against China. And think about the pace at which all of this has happened, right? I mean, if you go back a month ago, the only thing that they had to run on was infrastructure. That was the only legislation of significance because it was about a month ago that the gun 
reform legislation passed. And then now we have the rest of this. But prior to that, I mean, it was a drought in terms of having legislative accomplishments. If you had told me the day Biden took president to to, to, to the oath of office, if you just would have laid that out, I would have said, we're back. This is what the Democrats are. We're, We're back. Putting into the context now of Afghanistan and just the overall Biden presidency, which has not been great. We're gonna it's gonna be really interesting to see when gas is still four fifty and food milk is still over three bucks a gallon and you still struggle to get meat sometimes in the store. We're gonna really find out what pocketbook issue are are how much do pocketbook issues drive midterm elections. Right. Because if you take inflation out of the mix a lot of people's temperature comes down. They probably look at the Democrats very differently. Oh, co- yeah, completely. Do, do you think there's – I think this obviously helps the Democrats in, in the midterm. But what does this do for the Democrats' brand if they're able to push these things across the finish line? It, it finally gives them a message to run on. That's been the problem is they haven't had a coherent message. They haven't had like these themes that they could – you know, hit like bullets and say, this is what we're about. This provides them the ability to, to do that. Um, common sense gun reform, um, national security interest and increasing semiconductor manufacturing capacity, uh, you know, reform so that we can provide, uh, prescription drug coverage, uh, for seniors under Medicare. I, I mean, there's this litany of things now that they have and then climate change, which, has resonance among everybody, but especially those young voters, young Democrats who have been very disenchanted with the Biden administration, and that uh, up until now, Democrats have said are probably not going to turn out and vote because that you know they're they're just so um, uh, upset and disillusioned. So they have messaging now, and you know, and being able to say that we are the party that gets things done. Because if you you know go back to the last several years under Trump, there was very little that yeah. passed or was accomplished. Um, and Republicans tended to to block everything, they can now say, hey, we are the problem solvers, we are the governing party, we are getting things done, and we're not just passing um, legislation in any one area. We're not, you know, we don't have one single focus. We are trying to tackle all of these major issues, uh, and, and we've been able to do some of that. So I think it does give them something to run on, and I think even – you're not going to be able to completely offset the economic impact with inflation and perhaps even a looming recession. But you can point to you know, some of this legislation, particularly you know, whether it's the assistance for uh, people that are uh, want to buy electric vehicles who see the high gas prices and electric vehicles are a, a solution to that, an alternative, or being able to create manufacturing centers in rural America. America. There's economic impacts to all of those that are at play. You can point to those and say, hey, this will help our economy. Uh, you know, this is one piece of the puzzle that we have to solve for. Damn. Yeah, I, I certainly think there's some, this gives them a little more runway and a little more ground to plow coming up for for the mid midterm elections. It doesn't change everything, but it it's, I mean, this is the best thing that could happen to them before the midterms, and it definitely puts them in a much greater offensive position, right? Less well, on the defensive. I'm going to disagree. The best thing that could happen to us is gas is suddenly 225 a gallon. 
Because while all of this is going on, it doesn't relieve the day-to-day pressures that inflation puts on yeah. millions and millions Okay, I'll of qualify people. by saying it's the best thing that could happen legislatively yes. for them. Legislatively, correct. Right. But I think right now, if it's still 86 bucks to fill up yeah. the car. That's ridiculous. We still have problems getting certain things in, in stores. Supply chain issues Supply are still chain. This is a risky— Pervasive. Here's what I don't get. So Hugh Hewitt, Ben Shapiro, all of your typical economic conservatives basically have said that the working definition of, of inflation is when too, many, too much money is chasing too little product. Basically, that's when everything goes up. And what you want to do is have people stop spending money. So in a cycle where there's too much money, we're going to pump – we're going to blow another big pile of cash through government spending into the economy. This had better work because if this makes inflation worse and prices go up – because a lot of these things, you're not going to see the benefit if you even see a benefit for them for years down the road. If something happens with this, and in the short term, this causes more inflation, just by more speculation maybe of what's going to happen, the Democrats are going to have a massive problem on their hands. Yeah, well, I agree. And I think that's been the whole challenge with like the Fed interest rates hike, which, by the way, we had another interest rate hike this week, yeah. 0.75 basis yep. points, is trying to get it right because it is like threading a needle because you do uh, too much, you go directly into a recession. You do too little, you continue to have high inflation. So it's like uh, you know a scale and trying to get it to balance. So the Democrats did not follow your suggestion at all. Instead of slowing down, waiting, let's see what these, what these interest rate hikes do. Let's see if the gas market stabilizes. They just went straight ahead. They're not waiting to see, right. is, is inflation going to, to die? Have we hit the peak? They're, but they, also, they're also playing the game by a different calendar. They have the November calendar in mind, so they know that they true. can't afford to wait either. So that's part of the calculus for them. It's a they're little bit different. Also making a, they're taking a huge gamble that there's not a huge COVID outbreak in China, and China starts locking things down again. Right. Because if the, if the supply line cannot, cannot pr- produce enough products for the amount of money people have that's chasing those products, inflation doesn't go away. Yeah. It's going to be that really lingers. interesting to see all the traditionalists when it comes to the economy about what government spending does to infl- inflation to see what actually comes to. And I'll be the last one to make predictions on inflation because I follow several economists and it's kind of all over the map right yeah. now in terms of what's going to happen. I mean, there's several who have the mindset that we're uh, starting to see prices stabilize and that we're finally kind of, you know, starting to go over that peak. Yeah. There's others that say we could have many more months to go. Yeah. So it's it's tough to say. Um, and then even there seems to be more agreement on an, a coming recession. And then, a, like with anything, there's divergence in terms of severity of that recession. Just um, change the definition, Brandon. Like, yeah. Like the Biden administration did this yeah. week. Yeah. No, that doesn't count anymore. This is a different one. Just admit it, own up to that fact. And, um, and, and I mean, say that, you know, this, we're in this economic state of play right now, which, by the way, recessions are to some degree cyclical. Um, I mean, you don't go forever without a recession. You tend to have re- recessions at some point. And if you're trying to get inflation under control, that's more than likely going to happen. But the idea is you want to have a recession that's as mild as possible yeah. so that the impacts are far less. We don't want to see anything like the Great Recession of 2008 9 over yeah. again. Uh, but, you know, even since 
and we've had a couple of mild uh, recessions, which nobody remembers because they were very brief and fleeting. Yeah. And, you know, they didn't impact employment and the economy the way that uh, people tend to think of recessions. I read this the other day, and I hope this is true. The average bull market lasts 919 days and adds like 134% in value to the market. The average bear market lasts 223 days and reduces the market by 34%. So even when we're in the down cycle, we're still chipping off a a huge three-year run of gains. Yeah. And eventually these cycles, they don't last a year. They, they, no. they work themselves out fairly quickly. What makes this more complicated is we don't know what the state of the world is going to be due to COVID in Asia and places that we get a lot of these goods. Right. That's got to stabilize. And so, and the difference this time, unlike prior times, is the systemic supply chain issues, which n- yeah. did happen because, which were not a uh, organic economic factor, right? I mean, it, it happened because of the, um, you know, government imposed lockdowns because of COVID and because of the virus. So that was something that was not, you know, did not naturally happen. And we've been struggling now for a couple of years to, mm-hmm. um, to, to fix that. And it's not fixed yet. I can't believe any politician is not using the analogy. So we had a minor disrupt, not a minor, we had a significant disruption in our supply line from China and Asia due to COVID. And look at all the problems it's causing. Well, yeah, and also because, uh, let's be honest, I mean, a lot of this on China's part is self-inflicted because of their draconian measures they continue to take in terms of really forcibly locking people down, not allowed to go outside. I mean, we're three years in the COVID. We have vaccines. We have treatments. Like, China is like the last country left that is still imposing these very autocratic measures and really shutting everything down. And so that's where the finger should be pointed is China. So if I were a politician, that's unnecessary. That would be my lead. And I'd let everybody in the crowd agree with me because there's universal agreement upon that. Then the question I would ask is, and what happens if they decided to do it on purpose? Yeah. Right. I mean, if you want to really know the Chinese threat, what happens if they just decided we're, we're shutting the pipeline off or we're just going to pinch the pipeline a little bit? That's the type of pressure or that China can put on the United States economy. And I think maybe there's an opportunity with what's happening now for somebody to educate folks on that. And there's a path for legislation uh, that that can open up as well. I agreed. I, and I think that, I mean, we should be calling out China at every opportunity and, and assigning blame because they are to blame when it comes to the supply chain. I mean, it really yeah. kind of all rests on them. Or you could say we're to blame because we decided we wanted to make a whole bunch more money and manufacturing here is expensive. So we made the conscious decision to push it all over there where it's cheaper. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, if yeah. you go back to the beginning, <laughs> I mean, we... Yeah. I mean, a- I mean... They didn't come over here and forcibly steal those jobs. We right. gave them to them as part of an economic plan. So that's been over the last 30 plus years. Yeah. Hey, Paul Krugman, maybe you weren't right that if every country had a McDonald's, we'd never have another war. Maybe when you hook all of us together economically, you create spheres of influences and certain powers that maybe people you don't want to create. Like maybe this dude over in Russia who's got Germany by the nuts now in all of Western Europe because they gave up their nuclear power and decided they'd just buy cheap gas off off of him. Yeah, well, it reminds me, there's a good book that um, is 
several decades ago. I guess it was written like in 2003, 2004, still relevant today, but it's called uh, Jihad versus McWorld. And it looks hmm. at the you know globalization um, hmm. and the power that that has to inextricably link economies, prevent war, right? So that's what yes. we've been told. That was the theory. And, and that wa- you know, was the assumption, operating assumption that was working throughout most of the 90s but we saw that that only goes so far and again that only you know and that seems to really only apply to um democratic countries and not so much autocratic states but it does say that there is a reaction to that as well that if you encroach too much um, on societies that either are not ready or are opposed to it the reaction is this tribalism that forms um and and then everything becomes um you know, internalized, and they become much more focused on um, not going outward, but going inward. And so, you know, that is what I think what we're seeing today and what we've seen over the last several years. I mean, that's why even many of these countries that have these populist movements that are focused on isolationist economic policy yeah. and foreign policy, it resonates from uh, a reaction to globalization. And I think what, what we've learned is there's pockets of the world where world economic conditions don't trump nationalism and tribalism. Yes. We can be, Russia can be integrated into the modern economy, and Putin can still have a stick up his ass about 100 years about something that happened in Ukraine, and he wants it back because Ukraine is his. And, and, and we forget that many of these leaders and people in other countries, Correct. we play the long game. I mean, they have long memories. Uh, you know, they remember wars that happened three, four, five hundred years ago. It's Correct. still, you know, very uh, yeah. significant in their minds. We don't. I mean, we have the attention span of gnats here in the U.S. I mean, we can't stay focused on an issue that happened Monday if it's Friday. And if you wave money in front of us, we don't think about anything else about money. Yeah. How much money can we make off just about anything? I think that's interesting that it's Russia and China causing these problems now, that it doesn't matter how many McDonald's you open in those two countries, they're not going to fall in, in line. They're not going to let the chance to participate in the world economy tamp down their nationalistic and, and tribalistic um, agenda. And, what and they conversely, want to more and they recently— care. Um, how many McDonald's you close. In the case of Russia, yeah. they've closed, you know, shit. McDonald's has exited the country and that hasn't changed anything. Let's end with, on this topic with this. Does this make you think any differently or feel any differently about Joe Biden's presidency if he manages to bring these things home, get these bills across the finish line? I think it gives him the ability to do a soft reset. And I say soft reset because I think that He's digging himself out of a hole, so it's not like he's jumping out and he's going to be have a 60% approval rating. But it enables him to stop the bleeding, maybe see positive movement in the polls marginally, and uh, and stop the decline. So I think it is a, a soft reset of sorts. And again, if played right, I mean, the messaging can be very powerful behind this if the White House can be effective on that. Does it provide him an exit ramp for 2024? Hey guys, I think it what, does. Yeah, I came what I came to do. Everything passed. I ride off into the sunset. See y'all later. It might. Well, and I think again, it, it behooves <clears throat> him to remember that he was elected really to rebuild after the Trump presidency. Yeah, um, and get us back to a sense of normalcy. So, um, and some a- aspects of this agenda are very transformative, but. It, in essence, he wasn't elected to be a transformative pre- president. He no. was elected to be a transitional president. Correct. And this is, I mean, listing off what they've done, I mean, there's no doubt 
I mean, you can't make the argument that if Biden gets all of these things through, that his presidency was inconsequential from a legislative perspective. Oh, not at all. Yeah. I, I, I mean, mean, very consequential. Just what he's been able to do with this package of bills, most presidents, I think, would call that a success if they went went to, into the presidency with, the, with an agenda to pass legislation. Right. Let's switch over to everybody's topic, Trump and DOJ and him going to jail and just getting rid of him altogether. That's the only reason why I want to talk about this, because it might be that something actually happens and he just goes away. It, it appears to be that way. For the first time um, in many months, perhaps ever, we have indication from the Justice Department that they are actually looking at Trump. They have been uh, – they've subpoenaed officials in the administration and asked specifically about conversations that Trump had. So there appears to be an emphasis on Trump himself, not just on the periphery, not just on his minions and yeah. you know his uh, groupies, but actually on him. And so that is significant because, again, I feel like obviously the January 6th hearings are meant to uh, you know accomplish – um, set out the case, and they're not meant to, you know, indict criminally. But I also feel like the January 6th hearings have really been trying to f- force feed messaging to the Justice Department saying, here, yeah. here's everything, you guys, like, go at it. Uh, and it appears that they are doing that. Um, and it does remind me, because wasn't it, I think it was John Eastman, who was the um, attorney who basically authored the yes. diabolical plan to... The famous Eastman memo. Yep. So I think he was the one, too. Was it a month or so ago, month and a half ago, that they raided his house? Yeah. I think they issued another subpoena for his phone again. Oh, okay. So, so there there is movement happening here. Yeah. And so, and again, you have the Justice Department with their case, and you still have, you know, the Georgia um, investigation uh-huh. as well. Which again, we've talked about last pod that that one has um, the potential to be more impactful in terms of the charges that come about. Uh, so yeah, it, it's interesting. It looks like we may actually be headed in that direction. And then the question for me is, I wonder how this plays with Trump in terms of what he says and what he does leading up to November. It would not surprise me if he tries to usurp the midterms and make a surprise <laughs> presidential announcement. Please um, do. And again, Democrats I know are praying for that. And I again, it wouldn't surprise me because he's all about himself. I mean, he single-handedly is the one who lost the Senate seats in Georgia. He's going to do I mean, it for back you in again. 2020. Yeah. Gonna, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I can't think of a, of a single man who twice has lost a party the Senate. Yeah. I, do you remember back? And again, I know this is uh, you know kind of a uh, we're going back here. It's not, but it, it, those two Senate seats, I did not think actually the Democrats were going to win either of them I didn't either. in November. And then it was amazing in terms of what Trump said and did and his conduct to see the sea change in terms of those seats going to the Democrats and not just one, but both of them. And, and I think that's what the Democrats are trying to bottle up for 2022. That what happened in Georgia, where obviously Republicans looked at Trump's behavior and said, I'm, I can't do it. Yeah. I just can't. I cannot. I cannot reward that party for that man's behavior. I'm just not going to vote. And they think that they can do that again. N- not sure, but Trump certainly is the only one who opens that door of opportunity to, to be October able to, surprise. that message to, to happen. October surprise for the Democrats. A- Andy McCarthy made, up a, made a good point today that during Watergate, one of the functions of the Watergate hearing and the January 6th committee plays the same, same role. 
committees can get at data that the DOJ cannot do. The DOJ, like when they issue a subpoena, there's many more consequences to it, but the committee can say and do things that the DOJ would never do. Like, for example, when Liz Cheney gets on TV and lists off everybody that's taken the fifth, that's not something right. the DOJ would do. When Liz reads off the number of people who got pardons from Trump, that's not something that would come out in a DOJ in investigation. So the DOJ is learning new information just simply because Congress doesn't have this as a, as a restrictive set of rules when they do these types of investigations. No, there's no restrictions on Congress. So they can connect these dots. They can be much more liberal in yes. how they discuss the investigation than DOJ can. DOJ has to maintain a sense of impartiality yeah. and uh, you know reverence and has to – is by nature more reserved – uh, when he, speaking about the investigations in general, Congress doesn't have to do any of that. It just made the timeline fit a little better. Like, okay, it made sense to do this first because there's areas that this committee can explore, that they can get data that, that the DOJ can't, that then they can pass over to the DOJ if and when they decide to investigate and charge Trump. And the January 6th committee is a reconvening until September, but they have indicated that they are going to release snippets of information yeah. throughout the month of August, which I think is a great thing to do to keep the public um, updated and obviously following it and not, you know, out of mind, out of place. So we, we've debated the past two weeks about actually trying to convict Trump of a crime. Is there any way you think the DOJ would charge him but not move forward on the charge? Uh, I, gosh, I don't, I don't see that happening because I think that knowing what's at stake and knowing that, I mean, all of the eyes that are on this and all of the pressure, I don't see how you bring forward a charge if you're not going to prosecute. I mean, you at that point, you might as well not. Bring so, so you're in. If, if they yeah. – if they do the investigation and they make a charge, that means we're either negotiating a plea. They're going or full we're, board. We're going They're not to court. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I was. I'm still looking for some sort of path where maybe they could make their point, but we don't go down that rabbit hole. But it sounds like there's not. If they if they crack the seal, you're in. I think. That, in yeah. I think that they go. Yeah. Full board. And again, at that point, I mean. There could be some negotiation that could happen. I, I think the idea of um, Trump negotiating um, some type of uh, plea deal where he doesn't run for office again is compelling. Um, again, that requires a ego modification on his part, which I'm not sure he's able to do. But. What if he told the DOJ, you get Georgia to drop their shit and we'll just package them up together and I won't run? I could see him doing that. Saying, yeah. hey, you take me out of all legal jeopardy, and I, I won't run. That, I could definitely see that. That's the type of deal-making he tends to do. And yeah, Something else I read today that right now the Republican Party is paying all of Trump's legal bills. Yes. The second he announces for his presidency, that stops. Yeah. Because you can't, you can't have the, the party favoring one person by paying their legal bills. No. I mean, I although I wonder about that because the party broke new ground and all precedent when Trump was well, maybe not completely. They did break some ground in precedent when they were full board. They merged the RNC with his campaign yeah. committee that had never been done before. You know, in the past, the RNC would support the incumbent president, and there'd be donations and transfers of money, but in twenty nineteen. 
the RNC just said, look, we're just going to fuse our organization with the Trump re-election mach- machine, make them one and the same. Um, and that created problems with the, again, very scant opposition Trump initially had, um, you know, within the primary, which, of course, fizzled out. But um, the difference, too, is if he's going to be running again this time around, like there's going to be other people. It's going to more than Damn. likely be a crowded race. So the RNC cannot afford to play favorites this time. I mean, Carl Rove wrote, I believe it was in the Wall Street Journal op-ed, where he basically said, hey, people are going to stop donating to Trump. He, he's not using this money for his defense or his campaign. Yeah. I mean, he came out very strongly and said, there's a point in time for, for Trump to raise money. There's a point in time to not to. And right now, he's running danger close to losing his base because of all of the money that he's grifted off of them. For Carl Rove... To say that in a Wall Street Journal op-ed, that that's pretty significant. Because he hasn't stopped raising money since no. he lost. No. So eventually the spigot is going to run dry. I mean, especially, I mean, he relies on money from lower-income Americans, too, that live sure. paycheck to paycheck. I, and I remember there was that whole scam with, like, the auto opt-in for the reoccurring that's payments so from the bank yeah. accounts. And then there was a major lawsuit because, you I mean, You had to uncheck, like, three boxes yes. to, say, w- to, stop, to make that donation and, monthly. And it was super misleading. The people that signed up initially, it was tiny text. They could have easily if not seen that. you're 75, yeah. you can't navigate that form. Oh, and I think that did a lot of damage. But yeah, you you have all that. So you've already siphoned so much money from them that you're doing yourself a world of hurt because then you're going to declare you're going to run for president and then you really like need an influx of money. And the problem is like there was no break in between. It's hard to go back and say, I need more money now. Well, while Trump was in Arizona doing his thing, Fox, Laura Ingram had Ron DeSantis on for a 13-minute segment while Trump was speaking in Arizona. So uh, that's interesting. Yeah, Fox sign. did not broadcast his speech, which I found if, interesting. If the Fox Entertainment team, the, the seven to ten folks, if they spoil on Trump, it's done. Yeah. He, he's over at this point. Let's end this, which is just with the Trump topic, percentage chance he gets indicted. Just today. Uh, if you had to give a gun to the head, tell me X percent chance he gets indicted, what, what would that be? Uh, 45%. Yeah, I think that's probably about right. I think they, they're leading towards it. They're trying to get there, yeah. but they're going to have to, they're going to have to be very comfortable and know they're going to have to have a plan to how, what the conclusion is. I think before. And I know. think if we hear more, I'm willing to increase the odds of that, the probability, but for now I yeah. peg it at 45%. Andrew Yang is trying to start a third party. I, I am all, I would desperately like a third party in the United States. I am very cynical that a third party can ever happen in the United States. Because we know in the past it hasn't, right? So no. when we've had, um, I wouldn't mm. even say, we haven't had on the federal level successful third party efforts until, I mean, you would have to go back to the um, early 20th century, early 1900s. Yeah. Um, Teddy Roosevelt and the Bull Moose Party. Uh, really, and then when we've had a strong um, third-party contender, it's been somebody like a Ross Perot, who it's less about people getting behind the party than behind an outsized personality that has a yeah. lot of money. Brandon, how young were you when Ross Perot ran? 
Well, that was 1992, right? Yeah. When he ran for the first time. So I would have been six. Seven. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Then you, you didn't watch any of his debate. If you, if you, because during his debate, he called Clinton and Bush like chicken man and potato chip man and stuff. <laughs> was, he was it the was first great. third party candidate that was invited to participate in the primetime oh, yeah. debates, right? Because oh, that had never happened oh. before. And his, his vice president, Admiral Stockton, I believe. Oh my God. His debate was classic. Just okay, classic. so it was one of those debates where um, it was George H.W. Bush was infamously um, caught on camera, like rolling his eyes, yeah. looking at his He's watch. He's a terrible debater, yeah. old man Bush. Um, I'm a big fan of George H.W., but yeah, he's not a good debater. But yeah, so I think that's a challenge, the inherent dilemma for a third party. I'm not saying it's impossible. And if it were ever to happen, it would be right now when there's just this widespread disillusionment with the two-party system and, you know, this rapid rise in unaffiliated voters. But again, you would need to have, I think, an influx of cash, a couple of dynamic personalities, uh, very, and, and I would say a couple, because I don't think it'd be confined to one, because you need to be able to build a platform. Uh, so what's interesting about this effort is you have Andrew Yang, you have like three different mm-hmm. movements coming together, the Renew America movement, which is run by Miles Taylor, who was the guy in the Trump administration. Yeah. Um, so you do have a couple of different movements coming together here and uh, a focus on um, the economy and healthcare, um, particularly innovative side uh, of that, and then trying to create a wide tent to leave open the rest. But again, we have very little detail now. I know that Christine Todd Whitman, who's a former Republican of governor of New yeah. Jersey, is involved. There is a board leading this effort that's split almost half Democrat, half Republican. And it does include Republican officials going all the way back to the Reagan administration. Um, and some Democrat officials as well. So again, like right now, it's been very showy. It's been very like, you know, suspense driven, but we don't have a lot of detail yet. So that remains to be seen. And the the ultimate test will be being able to field candidates who can run in different places effectively. Mm -hmm. I would Mm -hmm. say their first opportunity to do that, if they were going to be successful, there is a, the most uh, the greatest third-party challenge in the November elections right now is Utah, where you have Evan McMullen, who's running against uh, uh, Mike Lee, yeah. the incumbent Republican. And that one was actually a, uh, a in- incredible sign of the Democrats thinking strategically because they united behind McMullen. They decided not to put up their own challenger, which, again, is smart thinking because yeah. it's Utah. Yep. Um, and the latest polling that's out of there actually shows Evan McMullen neck and neck with Mike Lee. So, I mean, that actually looks interesting. If you can unite Democrats, moderate Republicans in Utah who aren't crazy about Mike Lee, who's a bomb thrower, yeah. uh, and and then you could get something like this new forward party, their stamp of approval behind his candidacy, and they could inject a lot of cash into that campaign, that's where you could see success. And that could be like the foundational um, liftoff for this new party, but they, they need something to gain momentum. It can't just be rolling out a press release. We have all these, you know, names on both sides. They need something they can point to. So I think you're right in that third parties usually spring up over a single issue or, or a person, a dynamic personality. That's why they always fail. They, they always fail because something might be very important for this very brief moment, but eventually when that fails or that ends or that crisis is over, there's nothing left to you to get excited about for that person anymore. Right. To me, 
a party is is a, a political party's main job is to develop a, a platform of policies to how they want to impact the world and then to explain to people why it's urgent and important to elect the people in their party to enact that that agenda. And I think where parties have gotten off track, and this is specific to the Republican Party, they've stopped doing the hard work to put the agenda together of what policies, how are they actually going to impact the government, the economy, what's their position on social and cultural issues. That's really hard to do, and it also ties you into a, a framework that you put out that people can use against you. So instead, parties just mostly default to the easy thing. Just give me the biggest personality we got, and I'll just raise money and go. So for Republicans, that was Donald Trump. The, Correct. The party ceased putting out ideas, and then they became co-opted under Trump, who had a mishmash of political positions and policies yeah. that didn't even align with traditional Republican orthodoxy. And so you're at the state of play in the Republican Party today where you have this mix of economic populism yes. along with um, isolationism. They're all over the map, though. There is no coherent set of policy yeah. beliefs today in I the mean, Republican how Party. Could it, I mean, that would be so hard for a, a new party to develop a completely new platform. Because, again, the, the Republicans just refuse to do it. Yeah. The Democrats, we don't have one either, I don't think, or not one that's articulated. And if you're trying to break into the game, I would think you have to explain really, really clearly who you are and why it's important to listen to me. Because if you can't get that right off the bat, you have very little You need little an hope. overarching theme or issue, and yeah. then um, you need to have a policy platform. But then you also, if you want to be successful, realize that you know if you look at – and Republicans in recent years on some particular issues like abortion have gone to the other extreme where they've demanded this loyalty test, litmus test. So you also need to be a big tent, right, because we're a nation of 300 million people. So there's a balancing act there. But if I were to advise, I would say um, identify a couple of precepts that are core tenets that you want as areas of emphasis and focus. So maybe it's on, um, you know, protecting democracy, strengthening democracy and, you know, in the wake of what's happening around the world, as well as what almost happened mm -hmm. in 2020, uh, you know, being able to inject innovation and in, in healthcare, which has been a very static um, industry in terms of cost drivers for so long. And then um, you can have some uh, hot, overarching highbrow policy planks on other issues, but you know, be wary of getting too in the weeds on every issue where it becomes a litmus test. Because ultimately, mm -hmm. you want to establish, if you're going to establish yourself as an alternative, it's going to be about, uh, you know, we're focused on innovation, ideas, um, and we're also, I, I think when we've talked about in the past, Craig, we talked about what Democrats should do, right? Running on, like, good government, um, yeah. restoring... Um, yeah. And, and that's my thing. Isn't this party doomed to how, why all third parties are doomed? They're starting at the national level. Yeah. That's, that, that's the mistake they all make. Well, that's what they need. They need a local, local. or a statewide win local. to really be effective. Correct. And that's why, and again, I don't know that they're going to do this. They probably won't. But if it's all about putting out a press release, raising money without getting involved in any specific race at first, they're not going to have any yeah. wins or successes they could point to. And it's going to be harder for them to gain any traction. And, and there's the second thing of why they always start at the national level, because they need money and they have to raise money. And you're not going to do that 
money and attention doesn't come at the local level. So this is something where, I don't know if they tapped into you. So remember when Howard Schultz flirted with the presidential the, bid? The CEO of Starbucks guy? Yeah, like yeah. If reach out to him. I mean, he's this like third-party guy, right? This independent. He was a Republican, now independent. Like they need to get him to inject money uh, and, and do all that. And then if they if they get a couple of like really big backers, they can then spend less time focused on national fundraising and more on strategy. And they really need, again, to be effective, that money would also be well used if they looked at top states and localities where they can have an impact, yeah. have grassroots teams on the ground, you know, because they need localized infrastructure. Um, and that's where third parties have gone wrong in the past. They haven't had any kind of local apparatus. Yeah. And that's why I just love to ask Andrew, Andrew Yang. What are you trying to do? Because if you're actually trying to build a political party, that's a 25 to 50 year project. Is yeah. is that what this is? Because maybe, uh, I don't know. But you don't become a viable national party Correct. overnight. Yeah. And you're starting at the national level. Why? Is there an issue you're after? Is it just better government? If it's better government and you want people to see better government, you should start at the local level. Yeah, I because agree. you can put two senators under the whatever party in the Senate, what are those two senators going to do? Not much. Right. I mean, part of the motivation for starting at the national level may be that they feel they can get more press and coverage, obviously, than they sure. can starting local. So part Build of it is more a of play. brand, raise yeah. more money. I mean, th that's where everybody wants to start instead of just saying, we need to start slugging it out at the mayor of Olathe. Yeah. We need to start slugging it out in county seats. County and state, yeah. We need to battle local and county first for 10 years and then move up to the state level before we even attempt something. And just nobody well, wants to do that. Well, on county and state, if you're running for statewide office, those require less uh, you know, money anyway. So they would have to spend as much time raising money because those are you know, less expensive. And I think particularly if they, again, if you were to establish like, hey, pro-democracy initiative, we want to shore up, you know, democratic system, like start with Secretary of State's races. Like, that would be great. Get involved in Jack Cash because that's yeah. the where the power lies in terms of election laws. And then if you have successes, you can tangibly point to electing secretaries of state who are going to uphold the sure. law. I mean, if you wanted to make a financial or financial conservative argument, you could start with mayors, county executives. Uh, like I said, people who handle money at local levels. Th that's the thing that everybody wants to have, thinks that their their personality or their idea is going to magically create this national party. It's just never going to happen. Right. Brandon, I've been trying to watch more TV because I'm going to have to stop looking at TikTok here because <laughs> I'm pretty sure TikTok's going to get yanked off the uh, Apple uh, and that, Google store sometime way, yeah. in the very, very near, very near, near future. As I've swung back into TV, I've been kind of disappointed with some of the TV I've missed over the past year or so. Have you watched any of like the, the Star Trek stuff on Paramount? I haven't started any of the Star Trek yet. I All of that's that. gone to crap. The Picard season two sucked. Ugh. Discovery season four wasn't any good. I don't know. I, I'm going back more to classic TV, I think, now than, uh, than trying to find something new to watch. I'm about to start the fourth season of Stranger Things. I haven't okay. started that yet. That's pretty good, but to me, it's a good show. It's entertaining, but I get it. The bald chicks got superpowers and stuff. I think season five, they skipped to show them at their at their ages right now. The kids have gotten too old. You can't keep putting them back in that that kid scenario. So 
the next ep- the next season, I think, jumps like 20 years into the future or something. Like oh, that, that makes heard, sense. So. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, it said it's Twilight, that series, anyway. We were going to see Top Gun last week. Oh, you still haven't seen it? Well, we, we so <laughs> we were going to go see Top Gun, and yeah. Joe's sitting on the couch, and she's like, hey, let's go see this 4.30 showing of Top Gun. I'm like, sweet. It was sold out. The 4.30 showing wow. of Top Gun, five weeks after its release, was sold out. That is and it's nuts. like that's ridiculous. I'm not now. I'm like, like not going to go see it because it's going to be a crowd in there, and that's going to be terrible. It's made so much. It is so worth seeing at the theater. Though, if you're going to go see it at the theater, I would see it in IMAX or Dolby because when you see it in Dolby, like the sequence where the plane engines are starting yeah. and they're revving up, like you can feel the rumbling, like in the seats. Like it's such a cool. Is it, experience. is it fair to say Tom Cruise may save the the movie going experience? I, it appears to be so. Like, I mean, movies are taking off now, and so he may be the person to do it. I think the last movie, I, well, I saw was uh, the new Elvis biopic. Is that pretty good? It is actually pretty good. Yeah. I was impressed. It's very fast paced for a three hour like movie. That. So, I mean, there's it's not slow at all. It keeps going, and it's so it's Baz Luhrmann who did. Uh, Great Gatsby and Moulin Rouge. Okay. So his style of filmmaking is scenes that quickly cut, and then he inserts like animations and split okay. screens, and so you, I mean, things move quickly. And I would normally think it would be too quickly, but for a three-hour movie that's a bioepic about a, a a legend's entire life from the time he was a kid to he died, like no, that's good. Like it makes it go fast. It doesn't yeah. feel like a three-hour movie. They cover a lot of ground. I learned a lot I didn't know about Elvis, um, and especially his manager who. <laughs> is Tom Hanks super fat in that movie? Oh yeah, okay. like he's in a fat, like he's unrecognizable with the prosthetics. And yeah, because I saw him, like that's Tom Hanks. It's, apparently, it took him four hours to get into the prosthetics every day. But yeah, it is not. It does not look like him at all. So, Brandon, company comes to you, major motion picture. We saw you on on the internet. We want you. You got to start in this movie, but you have to go through <laughs> five hours of prosthetics and makeup a day. Are you in or out? I- I'm out. There's yeah, no I don't way. think I could do that. I can't, have you ever tried to sit still for five hours? No, like I just. There's no way. But I couldn't you, do it's it. interesting. Some of that's been like the new. Uh, you see these actors and actresses that could be completely transformed in these roles. Like that's the new thing now that that's happening. Did you ever see the? It was on NBC. The thing about Pam, that TV show. What TV show? Uh, it was called The Thing About Pam. No. So it's based on this true story out of St. Louis about this woman who killed her best friend and killed two other people. Like, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, like, go to YouTube and look up. There's, like, a whole 50-minute video. It's one of the craziest murder plots. The DA was friends with her, did a prosecute, like, it's, and she pretended to be a dateline. Anyway. That sounds very St. Louis. It was insane. Like, you think, no, there's no way this could have happened. And yeah, it happened. And now she's finally being prosecuted. But anyway, it was Renee Zellweger that played the part. And she ended up donning these massive prosthetics, a big fat suit to play this woman who looks completely different from her and is a different size and multiple sizes different than her. And she said the same thing. I think she went through like three hours every day of like doing that. And I just, I can't imagine. As an actor, I just tell everybody, I ain't putting on five hours worth of makeup and I ain't losing a bunch of weight for no part yeah if you got something i could look like this and just be chubby so be it but i'm not dropping 50 pounds that's a lot you gotta have a lot of patience to do that that. day in and day out for a while Uh, yeah it didn't work for that that's just that's just too much it doesn't matter being in the movies or not i that's our hour thanks brandon thanks craig 
Thanks for listening to Two Men in the Middle. Make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website at twomeninthemiddle.com. Drop us an email at twomeninthemiddle at gmail.com or tweet at us at Two Men in the Middle. We'll see you next week.